Hi, and welcome to Criminal Broads, a podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm Tori Telfer, and I am coming to you from 95 degree Chicago, where I am recording in a room with the window closed and the fan off for the purposes of sound. So don't say I never did anything for you. (laughs) Today, uh, this episode is very, very, very dark. Uh, Wild women on the wrong side of the law feels a little glib even. This is a story about evil and horror and hatred. It's so dark, in fact, that a part of me is like, what's the point of telling this? Why am I even trying to tell you about this? Um, And I I don't really have a clear-cut answer, although I guess uh, if you force me to answer, my answer would be that good comes from knowledge and it's important to know what is happening to our fellow citizens of this planet, what has happened to them. And I know that for me, researching this episode has made me feel more personally responsible for using my voice, doing what I can to make sure that my country is treating the vulnerable right, treating the immigrant and the refugee right. And so that's good. That sense of responsibility is good. Listen to the end if you can, if you dare, because I call out a couple of awesome organizations at the end who are working to stop the types of horrors I'm about to tell you about. Um, And I have a little activity in mind for us. But additionally, I mean, you should I don't want to traumatize anyone. So um, this episode has a lot of violence in it and it has several mentions of rape. So keep that in mind if you if you decide to listen. All right, without further ado, let's travel back to the 1990s, where we will be hopping from continent to continent. We will be hopping from Africa to North America and back again. The year was 1998 and the friendly, working-class, mostly white citizens of Manchester, New Hampshire were pleased to welcome a newcomer into their midst. Her name was Beatrice Munyanyezi, and she had come a long way to be there. She was from Rwanda, a mother of three beautiful girls, two of whom were twins, and she was seeking refuge in the United States of America because her home country had just been racked by one of the worst massacres the world had ever seen, the Rwandan Genocide. On her immigration forms, Beatrice mentioned that family members of hers had disappeared, that she had no political affiliation, and that, God no, she'd nothing to do with the violence. The genocide had been so horrific that any Rwandan citizen asking to come to the States had to answer pointed questions about it when applying for refugee status. Like this one. Did you have any involvement in the killing or injury to other persons since April 1st, 1994? Did you in any way encourage others to participate in such killing or injury? No, Beatrice wrote on the form. Beatrice and her girls were strangers in a strange land now, but at least they were safe. One neighbor remembered Beatrice as, quote, this sort of sad, forlorn mother with three little kids wondering, how the heck did I land on Mars? But Beatrice was a go-getter and knew that coming to America was the right move. She and her daughters wanted not the American dream, but the human dream, a place where they could live and work and study and grow, safe from the specter of rape, mutilation, murder on the side of the road that had loomed over them for so many awful months. And Manchester, New Hampshire was a place for them to do just that, to be safe. 
They settled into a quiet life there. Beatrice began studying for her degree in politics and society at the University of New Hampshire. Finally, they were far from the violence. Of course, Beatrice had seen things. She didn't like to speak of them. Here in New Hampshire, she could finally wash the blood from her clothes, get the stench of death out of her nostrils, try to forget what she had or had not done. The Rwandan genocide was the quickest large-scale killing spree the world has ever seen. It was a 100-day exercise in horrible efficiency. Those who did not have guns used machetes. Those who did not have machetes used garden tools. It is impossible to overstate how bad it was. It is impossible to read about it online without accidentally seeing photos of the piles of corpses or skulls or shin bones. Despite how fast it all happened, though, it was a long time coming in its way. Uh, in 1990, simmering tensions between two ethnic groups in Rwanda escalated into civil war. The groups were the majority group, the Hutus, and the minority group who had long held most of the power, the Tutsis. After this four years of civil war, the president of Rwanda, a Hutu, was killed when his plane was shot down on April 6, 1994. The Hutus assumed that the Tutsis had done it. And they began doing what they had been planning for a while, a final solution, an ethnic cleansing. Hutu extremists took over the capital and began mercilessly slaughtering Tutsis and even moderate Hutus. They set up roadblocks across the country to check people's ID cards and killed anyone who didn't have the right answer on that card. The genocide was a terrifying combination of brutality, people being chased down and hacked to death with machetes, with a cold, bureaucratic practicality, as radio stations urged people to kill their Tutsi neighbors and gave out names and addresses and license plate numbers of targets that had been meticulously prepared in advance. Rape was used as a weapon of war, militarized, so that raped women would, quote, die of sadness. The death toll climbed to 800,000 over 100 days. That's 8,000 people killed every day in a tiny country about the size of Vermont. There is much more to say, including the fact that the U.S. government knew about the genocide but decided not to intervene, something Bill Clinton has called his biggest regret. But by November of 1994, the 100 days were over and the United Nations had created the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, to start bringing perpetrators of the genocide to court to justice. However, this was a challenge because after the genocide, many of these perpetrators had scattered. Where had they gone? Where were they hiding? Who were they anyway? Beatrice didn't talk much about the genocide to her neighbors in New Hampshire. Naturally, they didn't press her to spill her trauma, even when one of them noticed scars on her back. All she would say, really, was that her husband was a political prisoner of war and that she was in New Hampshire because she wanted a better life. On her application for refugee status, she'd written, Since April 1994, my home country is going through a very difficult time, 
Given the scale of the killings, I don't feel secure enough to return home. But the story of her husband was a little more complicated than her neighbors realized. Just one year earlier, her husband, Arsene Shalom Natahobali, had been charged with crimes against humanity by the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. He had been the leader of a unit of the extremist Hutu paramilitary organization called the Interahamwe. He and his horrible mother, Pauline Nirama Suhuko, were personally responsible for helping develop the plan to exterminate Tutsi citizens. The two of them had erected and guarded one of those infamous roadblocks by their home in the city of Butare, where they slaughtered Tutsis by the thousands. It was one of the worst roadblocks in the country. When Arsene wasn't presiding over the rapes and murders at the roadblock, or raping and murdering himself, he would roam the countryside, literally hunting down Tutsis. After the genocide was over, and after hiding out in Kenya for a while, both Beatrice's husband and mother-in-law were captured, brought to trial, and eventually found guilty of genocide, extermination, rape, persecution, murder, inhuman acts. Both were sentenced to life in prison. But Beatrice? Beatrice had a life separate from all of that, she said. She was the sweet wife, the innocent mother. She had sworn on her immigration forms that she had nothing to do with the genocide, extermination, rape, persecution, murder, inhuman acts. Her daughters went to Catholic school now, and she'd gotten a job advocating for refugees before she enrolled in college. In 2003, she officially became a naturalized citizen of the United States. She was proud of all this, proud of what she'd become. In an interview on New Hampshire Public Radio, she said, I am a fighter. I like to be independent. I worked so hard to be here. I do what I have to do to survive. It was a heartwarming story, but it was built on the bloodiest lie. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. In 2004, Beatrice's sister, Prudence, also came to the U.S. She filled out the immigration forms and was asked, just like Beatrice, whether she or any of her family members had participated in the genocide. But Prudence answered that question a little differently than Beatrice had. Prudence said that, well, okay, her husband had been the director of some internal security forces that were backed by the Hutus. This little revelation caught the eye of a man named Brian Anderson, who worked for the Department of Homeland Security as a war crimes specialist. He began looking into Prudence and noticed that she had a sister who denied any and all involvement in the genocide. He turned his attention to Beatrice. Anderson didn't see what her neighbors saw, a sweet, articulate woman working hard for her daughters and this close to finishing her degree. 
What he saw was someone he suspected was pretending to be vulnerable. Someone using a veneer of vulnerability to disguise the fact that once she'd had a lot of power. But no one in Manchester, New Hampshire was going to be able to tell Brian Anderson what he needed to know about the past of Beatrice Munyanyezi. And so he traveled to Rwanda to look for clues, to Rwanda and then to the city of Butare, where Beatrice's husband and mother-in-law had run their roadblock. The roadblock was in front of the Hotel Ihuriru, which is where Beatrice had lived during the genocide. At the time, she had been pregnant with her twins, and she said that she spent her days holed up in her hotel room, trembling, avoiding the violence, focused on the new life within her, ignorant of what her husband may or may not have been doing. Anderson booked a room in that same hotel and began to ask questions. The search for clues about Beatrice was exhausting. There was the language barrier, which made things difficult, but it was far more than that. It was that he had to ask survivors to relive the absolute worst things that had ever happened to them. The stories they told him were nightmare material. Stories of seeing family members hacked to pieces, losing mothers, losing babies, losing everyone they had ever known. Amid all the grisly recounting, one nickname kept rising to the surface. The Commander. People kept mentioning her. The Commander. The Commander ran the roadblock in front of the Hotel Ihuriru. She would check people's identity cards and determine who lived and who died. She would tell her soldiers who to kill. And she seemed to enjoy that power. She was ruthless, shocking even her soldiers who were accustomed to blood. One particularly brutal story about the commander kept resurfacing during Anderson's research. It went like this. One day, the commander pulled a nun from a van. As the woman screamed and begged, the commander threw her into a bunch of soldiers and told them to assault her. She then led the nun to a pit of dead bodies, shoved her over the side, and shot her in the back of the head as she fell. There was one last thing to know about the commander during all of this. During all this horror, during the 100 days of the genocide, as she worked the roadblock, she was pregnant with twins. Anderson was sure he'd found his woman. The commander went by the nickname Bia, a shortening of Beatrice, clearly, and wife of Shalom. Remember, Beatrice's husband had Shalom as his middle name. The commander had also escaped Rwanda once the violence began turning against the killers in an armed convoy during July 1994. That fit perfectly with Beatrice's timeline. That was just when Beatrice had left Rwanda and fled to Kenya before arriving in New Hampshire three years later. For Brian Anderson, all of this was not just about pinning down one criminal. It was about getting some measure of relief and justice for the trauma-stricken Rwandan victims that he'd met during his research. So to be sure that he had the right woman, he even visited Hutu killers in prison and showed them Beatrice's photo. They identified her as the commander. It was her. It had been her all along. Her violent past simply disguised by the house in the city, the Catholic school for her kids, the college classes, the whole new life. 
In 2010, 12 years after Beatrice came to the United States, Anderson got a warrant for her arrest. When he showed up to her house at 6.30 in the morning, he found her sneering. As her daughters sobbed, Beatrice said, I have nothing to say to you. Of course, she was defiant. This was a woman, after all, who had once beaten a little boy to death because her soldiers had been making fun of the fact that, until then, she had no blood on her hands. Thus began the complicated process of trying a Rwandan war criminal who is now a U.S. citizen in the United States for crimes that had happened in Rwanda almost two decades ago. Beatrice Munyanyezi entered the courtroom with a somber face holding back tears. Prosecutors went right to work saying that Munyanyezi took part in the Rwandan genocide and, quote, lied to conceal what she did, which they said was encouraging, quote, killers to kill and rapists to rape in her home country in 1994. Beatrice's trial started in 2012. She had to be tried twice because her first trial was kind of a mess. Even though she was charged with a rather humble crime, immigration fraud, from lying on her immigration forms about her involvement in the genocide, the prosecution had to prove that she had been involved with the genocide in order to prove that she'd lied about being involved with the genocide. But there were a lot of issues lost in translation, literally. It should have been compelling to have, say, these hardened Hutu killers take the stand and testify that Beatrice had told them who to murder but when that testimony had to be translated for the jurors, a lot of the immediacy, a lot of the horror was lost. Another problem was that American jurors almost couldn't wrap their minds around the severity of the Rwandan genocide. Not only had it happened two decades earlier and an ocean away, but Beatrice's crimes were almost too monstrous. They were so brutal, so extreme that when recounted in a musty courtroom years later, to the jury they almost sounded like fiction. Her defense used an age-old tactic. They argued that a woman, a pregnant woman, a mother, could never do what she was accused of doing. Mothers didn't kill. Mothers didn't order people to rape. Mothers certainly didn't tear nuns out of vans and shove them into pits full of corpses. The defense emphasized that Beatrice was a refugee and a single mom who'd already witnessed so much violence. The trial was re-traumatizing her, they said. It was unfair. Interestingly enough, her mother-in-law had used a very similar tactic during her trial and even took the stand to declare her innocence in one of the most saccharine quotes I have ever read while researching female criminals. I couldn't even kill a chicken, her mother-in-law claimed. This was a woman who had ordered people to be hacked to death and allegedly poured gasoline over a group of women before burning them. I couldn't even kill a chicken, she said. If there is a person who says that a woman, a mother, could have killed, I'll tell you truly, then I am ready to confront that person. It may sound absurd to modern ears, but this has long been a fairly common argument used by female criminals. Motherhood is a pretty good defense. 
The German-American serial killer Anna Marie Hahn even had her adorable little son take the stand in order to play on the sympathies of the jury, who wept when they saw him. The British serial killer Marianne Cotton actually nursed her newborn infant in the courtroom as her lawyer wailed that a nursing mother could never kill. Now, it didn't actually ultimately work for either of these serial killers, but it's worked before. Um, what about Casey Anthony, accused of killing her toddler daughter? She got off and motherhood played a large role in that. And yeah, it's, it's hard. It's definitely hard to swallow the image of a pregnant woman sending off women and children to be massacred, but motherhood is, unfortunately, no guarantee of goodness. And in the case of Beatrice and her mother-in-law, we're not even talking about the horrors of filicide or even of serial killing. We're talking about crimes against humanity. Anyway, because of the confusions of the trial, the jury ended up deadlocked and a mistrial was declared. For a brief time, Beatrice went free. Before the second trial, Anderson went back to Rwanda to find more witnesses, better witnesses. Perhaps, he thought, those hardened killers who declared from the witness stand that they couldn't even remember their own body count weren't the most reliable figures to have up there. This time, he was looking for bystanders who'd seen Beatrice in action. He found a man who hid from the slaughter in a school across from the Butare roadblock, and who saw Beatrice standing by the roadblock with a notebook and pen, checking IDs, counting Tutsis, determining who would be killed, all while wearing the uniform of the Interahamwe, that civilian death squad that her husband worked for. This man, along with other vital eyewitnesses like him, was willing to testify in court for Beatrice's second trial. At this second trial, the prosecution spent less time on the overwhelming horrors of the genocide and more time on the mundane fact that Beatrice had lied on her U.S. citizenship application. This approach was less cinematic, but it worked. After four hours of deliberating, the jurors found her guilty of that lie. The judge gave her the maximum penalty possible for this rather underwhelming crime, 10 years in prison, and the revoking of her U.S. citizenship. Two years later, Beatrice tried to appeal her sentence. Her complaints were, among other things, that the witnesses were just trying to become heroes back in Rwanda by putting a Hutu like her behind bars, and that they'd recited stock storylines about the genocide. Oh, and the fact that just because she was at the roadblock wearing the uniform of a killer didn't mean she'd actually done anything. The federal appeals court more or less laughed in her face. They denied her appeal and wrote in a very sassy and rather delightful legal document. The bottom line is this. We reverse mistrial denials only under extremely compelling circumstances, and the circumstances here do not come within a country mile of satisfying that standard. And so it is in prison that Beatrice sits today until her release in January 2020. When that day comes, Brian Anderson plans to fight to get Beatrice tried for her far more heinous offenses in Rwanda so that she can finally and truly answer for her crimes against humanity in the country where she committed them. Until then, she waits in a federal prison in Alabama, a woman who disguised herself as the most vulnerable type of human, a refugee, in order to hide the fact that she was the killer of the vulnerable.
thank you for listening to Criminal Broads. This was a dark, heavy topic, as I warned you, without much hope in it. So I would like to offer a tiny, tiny thing we can do to create a little hope. Rwanda is still traumatized by the genocide, even though it's been over 20 years since it happened. 26% of its population suffers from PTSD to this day. And all across the world, there are orphans, displaced families, refugees whose lives were splintered in 1994 by people like Beatrice. So I think it would be nice if some of us donated to the amazing organizations that are out there working to make sure that these survivors are supported and that the world never again sees violence like this. I'm going to donate to two. The first is Supporting Survivors of the Rwandan Genocide, an organization that helps Rwandan survivors rebuild their lives, get jobs, get healthcare. You can find them at survivors-fund.org.uk. The second one is International Crisis Group, a badass organization working to literally prevent wars and shape policies that will build a more peaceful world. They actually warn the world when they see things like genocide coming down the pipeline. You can find them at crisisgroup.org, and I will link to all of this in the show notes. If you would like to join me in donating to one or both of these, send me an email and I'll give you a shout out on the next episode. You can reach me at criminalbroads at gmail.com. On the next episode, I will be joined by a very special guest in the world of true crime. You will probably know his name. And we will be talking about a woman with, let's just say a woman with a very interesting dating profile. Until then, please hug your loved ones and let's try to do some good in this world, however we can. All right, I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.